Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area, and today with me, as always, is... I'm Hai Chen Bui, a pop culture journalist in the D.C. area. And I am Anya Crittenden, associate editor at the Tracking Board. I do love nothing in the world so well as you. Is not that strange? That is a quote from Benedict in William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, and I sort of do love nothing in the world so much as William Shakespeare. And that is who we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about our favorite film adaptations from Shakespeare plays or miniseries, TV shows. The whole world is our oyster. The world is stage. <laughs> as the world is stage. I don't know Billy Shakespeare would say. Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> Billy Shakes. Beautiful intro, Anya. Yeah. Okay, Thank so you. You, you said that quote, and it immediately brought me back to high school when I played Benedict, because I remember speaking that line, and now I'm having flashbacks. I directed Not To Do About Nothing in high school. So, I it's one of my favorite... It's actually my favorite Shakespeare comedy. Um, and that's where we should start, because the Not To Do About Nothing film is, I think, one of the best Shakespeare adaptations, and a lot of people's favorites. Uh, the... Um, Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson one. Of course. Have you guys seen it? Yes. You know, I actually haven't. What? I've Okay, I've seen the long take at the end of uh, Much Ado, because I've heard like that's very like one of the most famous ones. So I've seen that part, but I have not seen the entirety of Much Ado. Anya, why, why don't you break it down for HD? Yes, break it down for me. Break what down? The like, plot? Who, or? Who, like, who's in it? What makes it so great? Mm-hmm. Well... Okay, so who's in it? Well, I just should start. You're missing out some quality performances from Michael Keaton, Keanu Reeves, Denzel Washington, Robert Sean Leonard. It is a wild ride. Am I missing really? Am I really missing a performance from Keanu Reeves though? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. And you've also got Kenneth Branagh who's directed of and course. starred in it, and you've got Emma Thompson as Beatrice. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the you know, Much Ado has become kind of famous for its relationship of Beatrice and Benedict um, and Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh are the ones that kind of really own that film um, Kenneth Branagh is one of you know Hollywood's biggest Shakespeare aficionados he's done several adaptations um, knows all the material very well this is also I believe the time when he and Emma Thompson were married um, so the chemistry was very real um, and it's just it's such an endearing adaptation I mean you know you can tell that Branagh really loves Shakespeare um, and all his adaptations, even the ones that work less well than others, um, there's still a passion there for the material. Um, and the thing is, he understands the material. I think that's a danger with Shakespeare adaptations. If you don't get the kind of the subtleties, because Shakespeare was a very smart playwright. There are a lot of jokes that go over people's heads and like little plot points. And, and I think Branagh knows what he's doing. Yeah. yeah, and I think sometimes people forget that Shakespeare, that Shakespeare his work his works are plays so like visually there's an element there that you don't get when you just read it mm-hmm. and i think yeah. and when you and if you if you don't hear it too cuz shakespeare is meant to be heard and not just writ, like uh read yes yeah and he has a lot of uh, dirty jokes in his plays too like a lot of people see shakespeare as the pinnacle of literature and prestigious writing but he's actually kind of a dirty I'm an old man dirty young man <laughs> he has a lot of uh innuendos in there mm-hmm. oh yes we should we should point out now for our listeners that any theory about shakespeare not existing and being <laughs> written by other people is 
totally false and completely not true. William Shakespeare was a real person. He wrote his plays. Not somebody else. Just gonna put that out there. What is that? What is that conspiracy theory? Like, how did that come about? I guess just like because he was so successful, people of course want to tear him down, kind of yeah. thing. Something like that. I mean, some people also just don't believe that he could have written all those plays. Um, there's there's sort of a classist element to this conspiracy theory, and that like Shakespeare was, you know, a poor kid and he didn't have as much education as others and things like that. And how could he have written such great works and such smart works? Um, Derek Jacobi, who's actually another well-known Shakespeare actor, um, he, if I remember correctly, is one of those conspiracy theorists. What? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, I'm just gonna put that out there. Shakespeare's brilliant, and he wrote his own stuff, and we are forever more richer for it as a society. I agree. Actually, I am the one person in this group who is not the hugest Shakespeare fan, not as much as Anya and Willoughby are anyways. Like, Anya and Willoughby were both big theater kids in high school. They kind of grew up, like, in, embroiled in the works of Shakespeare. Meanwhile, I first studied Shakespeare in high school as well. I got a B on that section, and I was so upset that I was, I was, like, I was just like, you know what? Screw you, Shakespeare. <laughs> but I don't hate him because of that. I do like his works. It ended up being, for me, like, I ended up seeing, like, a play uh, in D.C., a Shakespeare play. I can't remember what it was. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And it was, like, it was a Shakespeare comedy. And I was like, wow. So it, it actually does, like, I agree with, like, Willoughby. It works out much better on the stage than it does on the page. Also, like, all my analysis that, that I did for, sh- for those Shakespeare passages, my teacher said that they were wrong. And I was like, you know what? You're wrong. So, okay. That's my Shakespeare. I mean, I, mean, I may love difficult. Shakespeare, but I did not do well in a Shakespeare class mm-hmm. either because it's, like, tough. I remember I, I, well, I did pretty well. <laughs> I'm not going to sugar. I'm not going to lie about that. But I remember having a big argument in my class one uh, year about um, Othello. Mm-hmm. Because we were all, we were reading Othello and at the, when we finished it, and at the very end we were discussing Iago, who I think is one of the greatest Shakespeare characters of all time. Um, Kenneth Branagh played Iago in his adaptation of Othello with mm-hmm. Lawrence Fishburne as Othello. Um, a, not a, not as great of an adaptation as Much Ado or Hamlet, um, but we all argued about whether or not Iago won at the end of Othello. Mm-hmm. Um, and the clear answer is yes. Yeah. It's obvious, because he's kind of a chaos maker in the end. It yeah, and, like, he might have perished, perished at the end, but, mm-hmm. like, he's still, his plan to, like, throw everything into chaos and, like, get Othello to, like, think Desdemona betrayed him and all these things went according to plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the thing is just Shakespeare, you know, he deals with such interesting issues, and his characters are so just colorful and wonderful and there's a lot to kind of there's a lot there to enjoy um do you guys remember any of your favorite or your favorite slash maybe first Shakespeare plays I think it was Macbeth and I was a huge fan of Lady Macbeth um she was one of the most interesting female characters that I'd seen that I'd like read in any of my English classes I was really fascinated by her but I was really angered by the way that she died in the play, which was off stage, just kind of almost as an afterthought. So 
I kind of wish that because she was such a dynamic and interesting character who really was like the true both in- protagonist and antagonist of the story because she was the one driving the plot essentially. Um, I wish that she got to shine more and I wondered if that was because of just like the time in which it was written but then like Shakespeare I feel like has a lot of has a really big, good grasp of female characters more so than a lot of playwrights from his era. So yeah. I don't know. I, I really love Lady Macbeth. That's like one of my favorites. She is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So since we're talking about adaptations, I'll give you a recommendation. Mm. You should check out um well, the Michael Fassbender Macbeth. Yes. Um, with Marianne Cotillard. Uh, but more than that one, lesser known, um, BBC did a series of Shakespeare retold, which was basically they adapted a handful of his plays in different modern settings. So, like, they did a bunch of do about nothing, and it takes place in a newsroom. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, Ooh, Billy Piper's in it. It's like Amy uh, and Lewis his Girl Friday. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I like that. And then Macbeth uh, takes place. Macbeth is actually um, a chef. Chef, um, <laughs> Chef Macbeth. And the politics of the kitchen. Oh my god. And he's played by the one and only James McAvoy. Oh, of no course shit. you know it. Really? Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and Richard Armitage is in it, Keely Hawes is in it. Um, they're like hour long like productions, like mm-hmm. they're like pretty short. It's called Shakespeare Retold. Mm-hmm. Is it the there are is couple... it pretty is it the same language or is it like modern retelling of the language? Like is it like is like, it in Shakespearean language, or, yeah. is it or is it modern, vernacular? modern yeah. If I remember, I actually haven't watched these since, like, high school, but if I remember correctly, they use Shakespeare language. Mm-hmm. Okay, just truncated to, to fit an hour. Yeah, yeah, but it's really good, um, and they're really fun adaptations, because they kind of play with their settings. Like, in Much Ado About Nothing, there's that scene where Benedict and Beatrice are overhearing conversations about one another, mm-hmm. um, and so, like, in this one, they're hiding in the newsroom, and there's, like, a scene where, like, Benedict has, like, the headphones on from, like, the new set, and he's, like, trying to, like, hide, and he, like, gets caught in them, and it's very good physical comedy. Um, so you should check those out. So oh, well. I'm just going to give you guys recommendations throughout the episode. I like this idea. So Willoughby. Uh, Willoughby. Um, probably Romeo and Juliet was the first one I really, like, read all the way through because we did it in, in high school. Um, we watched uh, the 1968 Zeffirelli movie. Uh, with the guy who looks like Zac, Zac Efron. Efron. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Classic Romeo and Juliet movie. Um, I've also watched, like, the Baz Luhrmann version, which we can get into if we want. Oh, yeah, I love that version. Yeah. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's in a Hawaiian shirt for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I think we should get into that. I think that's a great adaptation. Yeah, okay, so why don't we talk about it? So, like... Let's talk about, like, modern versus the straight adaptation of Shakespeare movies and then, like, bringing the Shakespeare language to these modern eras versus, like, Mm -hmm. adapting them for modern English. So let's shelve Romeo plus Juliet for a minute because I think the modern, there's more interesting there. We should talk about kind of some of the more traditional ones real Mm -hmm. quick and then we'll get back to Bob Lerman for you, Willoughby. I like this idea. Okay. Okay. Um, So traditional, I'm going to plug my first Shakespeare play because the movie adaptation I saw is traditional. So my first Shakespeare play was Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. which I love. Um, I actually played Oberon in a production, which is interesting. I played the fairy king. Very um, interesting. <laughs> well, it's, isn't Midsummer's all about gender kind of... No, that's a different one. Twelfth Night. That's well, they're all kind of like that. There's, there's a lot of gender yeah. kind of... Well, um, I mean, it was more so that, like, in theater, there's, a, there's typically a lack of men... <laughs> 
Um, in like in like high school theater, yeah, mm-hmm. especially. Um, and so a lot of girls usually have to play the male roles, which is the opposite of Shakespeare's time. That's true. Um, we actually had a good even balance in my high school. Hmm. Oh, that's actually really nice. We did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I played Oberon. I he's one of my favorite characters as well. But Midsummer is one of those kind of I think the easier comedies, and I know one that a lot of people start with and. The adaptation I saw um, that I love, it has a great cast. It's set kind of in that historical period, but uh, Stanley Tucci plays Puck. Rupert Everett is Oberon. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer is Titania. And there's also uh, Christian Bale, (laughs) um, who's actually great. Um, And then, oh gosh, Kevin Kline, I believe, plays Bottom. Um, <laughs> he plays the donkey. And then that's like guys, Kevin Klein role. Did you guys see um, Pushing Daisies? You guys know Pushing Daisies, of course. Yeah. one of my favorite. Yeah, shows. so Anna Friel, um, who played Chuck, mm-hmm. uh, she plays one of the girls. She plays Hermia. When is this adaptation from? It seems pretty recent. If yeah, like, Calista Flockhart is mm-hmm. in it too. Um, it's very good. It is from 1999. Oh. Interfield is working back in 99. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And so it's really great. Dominic West is in it as well. So it's just a great cast and it's very traditional Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a straight adaptation. Like what Kenneth Branagh does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, except with no bleach blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hamlet. Although I like that version of Hamlet, but it's very long. Um, and so I think there, you know, there's something. There's something in these traditional Shakespeare adaptations, kind of, I guess, they can sometimes be more palatable than the ones get, that get reinterpreted, because reimaginings don't always work. They're always very button-pushing, the reimaginings. Well, you well, also I, have to you know, suspend I, a ton of disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say there has to be a reason to reimagine it in, like, this particular setting. Like, yeah. there has to be something that yeah. works. I saw... In D.C., actually, I saw an adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, and it was set during the Cuban Revolution. Interesting. Um, because the whole Much Ado, they're coming back from... Oh, a war, like, yeah. A war. Mm-hmm. And so in this one, it, set, it takes place during the Cuban Revolution. It was a cast like, of color, which was really great. Um, and so, yeah, so this is a really good... Um, it's a nice dream, but that giant cast is a really fun film. Um, and kind of, if you're creating that traditional Shakespeare... Is really great. So let's. What do you think is beneficial about doing a straight traditional Shakespeare adaptation versus, you know, a modern one or even like a just a loose adaptation of it with a, that's set in modern settings? I think it's easier because you don't have to kind of make sure your reimagining fits what Shakespeare was writing. Right. Like if you kind of just make it take place when Shakespeare said it take, took place, and like everyone kind of fits the same character molds that they do in the play it's just pretty easy to just interpret. I mean, there's still, like, the language barrier of sorts. You still mm-hmm. need to make it, like, accessible to mass audiences. But in reimaginings, you really have to, like, under you have to understand his work so fully mm-hmm. that it really works how you're reimagining it. Yeah, that you can basically basically, basically tell the same story with, with similar characters or the same characters just, like, on a beach instead of actual Verona. Yeah. So, do you personally think that these stories are better told in their the period that they're from, or do you think that they're so universal that they can be ad- adapted and like, or do you think that sometimes it's just like stretching it, or yeah? 
mean, I think they're universal yeah. enough. I mean, I think that there's merit in the traditional retellings, um, just in sort of preserving that vision. But, I mean, they would get a little boring if we only saw traditional adaptations of Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah, so, there's always so many times you can watch, like, the classics, like, costumes and... Starry-eyed and teenagers. With no, like, modern stuff. Mm-hmm. It also could be that a lot of older Shakespeare adaptations are, like, filmed with, like, older stop filmmaking styles and not so like quick or something because mm-hmm. like i remember watching romeo plus juliet and like that was the quickest at quick quickest edited movie that is boslerman and it's boslerman style, style yeah. but i think it works because it's like it keeps you on your toes and you're like paying attention i think that's a good segue to talk about romeo plus juliet yeah and i think we should distinguish it from romeo and juliet because it's the plus is in the cover art it's not an and it's a plus sign So I think Romeo plus Juliet is kind of the epitome of those really interesting experimental reimaginings of Shakespeare. And it, I think it works for its like ridiculousness and over the topness, but a lot of people don't like how um, incongruous it is with the original story. And I think that's what, that's exactly what people don't like about it is that it, they, they don't, it's it's not what they were expecting, and, mm. and but I think that the story is so fully invested in it being a modern retelling, it on like Verona Beach or something like that. Verona Beach, yeah, with Hawaiian shirts, with Hawaiian shirts yeah. and parties and like costume parties with the with them both looking at the aquarium and like with Claire, Claire Danes and Romeo and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio are excellent. They I think are. that they do a great job of being like. Of encapsulating those characters, you've got uh, oh, what's his face? I got his, forgot his name, but he's in Lost. Michael from Lost. Michael from Lost. Is I, I think Harold Harold Perrineau. Oh, yeah, Harold Perrineau. He is. He's one of the fifth, my favorite parts of that Mercutio, movie. Mercutio, and yes. he knocks it out of the park. Well, yeah. Mercutio is also one of probably one of the biggest fan favorite Shakespeare characters. Well, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But I think I mean you could you could do that. He he goes over the top in just the right way. He's very game with that role. Yeah, um, and it's very much like. There's he Baz Luhrmann sticks to the aesthetic of his of this film that he's trying to go for like through and through 110 percent, um, and I I really like it. I think uh, it stumbles a little bit with sometimes the editing could be a little bit too hard to handle, um, but I think that you've got uh, you've got uh, John Leguizamo as Tybalt. Oh my god, I forgot he was amazing in that movie. as Tibble. Uh, do you remember Paul Rudd? <gasps> Paul Rudd's in it. In Paul Rudd's the prince, it's right? Peak 90s. Yeah, he's Paris. Oh my god. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, that's. And I I think that, that it's so fun that if you kind of. Can, it's, like a, it's like a play, uh, like a modern play where it's like, oh, we're just going to have everyone in Hawaiian shirts and we'll make it work. And then, he, and then it does because it's just kind of. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think you nail it on the head, Willoughby, that like. I think Romeo plus Juliet works so well is because they commit. Yeah, they commit. Like to no it. one, no one is nervous or embarrassed to kind of really commit to Boslerman's vi- vision. Like had had they done it, but like you could tell there was like they were unsure. It might not have landed as well as it did, but yeah. like because they're so committed to this vision, it works so well. I think the other interesting thing is that they keep Shakespeare's language intact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Which, one of the most notable parts of the movie, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work in every 
modern adaptation, of course, and shouldn't. Um, but it, I think it works well in Baz Luhrmann's version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like you're watching some weird international film, mm-hmm. but you're not. It's yeah, it's, it, and um, and I think that because like every every actor in that movie understands what movie they're in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get Shakespeare movies where uh, certain characters will be on the nose and like a hundred percent there, and then you get other character other actors who are just like like you said embarrassed and they they kind of scale it back and they're more like maybe maybe more traditional yeah and so i think you know you have modern adaptations like that that are so stylized and then you kind of have the ones that just take the plot and kind of move it into a modern day setting don't keep the language but like the stories are so as you said ht universal Mm -hmm. that you can kind of put them in different scenarios so i think a lot of people's favorites is probably 10 Things I Hate About You, which is and based on Taming one. of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, and, and it works a lot better as a modern adaptation because Taming of the Shrew is a little bit problematic in that it's about um, yeah. making a woman more submissive. and Literally called Taming of the yeah, Shrew. Exactly. Shrew, yeah, exactly. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, I just want to back up for one more second. Um, one, a lo- along with Romeo plus Juliet around the same time uh, was uh, Hamlet with Ethan Hawke. Was it Hamlet 2000? It, it was made in 2000. Oh, so I it call was it, called Hamlet 2000. I call it Hamlet 2000 because back then a lot of movies, like there was Dracula 2000. <laughs> so that's where I get this from, is that it was filmed in 2000. It's super 2000. <laughs> um, it's Ethan Hawke. It's basically like the modern version of, it's basically like a scaled down like or scaled back modern version where it's still the same language. It's still the same story. It's the same characters. It's just set in the corporate world because it, instead of like you know what what Romeo and Juliet were doing with Vaz Lerman, it's like these like corporate entities in New York City and you've got uh, Ethan Hawke as like a college student coming back from college and he's uh, just like he's, he wears like a, a ski hat the entire time with like a suit jacket uh, and he's it's like super like it wants to be Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, but, but it has like a detached irony about it. Yeah, and the, and um, oh, what's his face? Uh, Kyle MacLachlan is uh, Claudius. Oh my god, it's great. That part, he's great in that. But the, it kind of falters in the fact that Hamlet's so long that you kind of and Bill Murray is Polonius um, that it just kind of falters when it tries to keep the narrative going by but still being in this modern. It's not it's not as fast as Romeo plus Juliet. It's very slow. Um, Steve Zahn is one of Rosencrantz or Gamblethestern. It uh, does have the iconic scene, though, of Ethan Hawke doing the to be or not to be monologue in a blockbuster. blockbuster. The action section of a blockbuster. It is peak 90s, or yeah. peak 2000, <laughs> rather. Yeah. So, <laughs> the type of Shakespeare adaptation that makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's kind of the flip side to what it's we were opposite, just talking yeah. about with uh, Romeo plus Juliet. Where it's it's, the one not, where it fails. it's mm-hmm. not great, but it's it's got a, a it's got a there's a reason to watch it, which is just to see it for it's so 2000 na- nature. Mm-hmm. I if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do a more modern Hamlet, I'm gonna watch David Tennant's Hamlet. Oh. Well, yeah, um, from 2009. But that's like a, a filmed play, right? Sort of, yeah, and it, it's modern, um, but it's great. I just think Hamlet 2000. I don't think it understood the material. Uh, I agree. It definitely didn't. As well as it should have. Um, I think there's also something to be said that tragedies are harder to adapt 
than comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially in modern day settings, because his tragedies are so sort of over the top when you try and put them in modern day settings. Yeah, um, you kind of have to have a so re- like, you have to kind of adapt it to a reason that could make it so over the top. Like if you're doing like Macbeth or Julius Caesar, you kind of ha- which are like you know king making and king killing. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to figure out like, well, who's what? What is their leadership position in this in the modern version? Is killing the literal ver- term for killing, or is it some sort of yeah. like killing a career or something like that? Yeah, yeah, and like Romeo plus Juliet works as a tragedy because like Bob Lerman, it. it feels like it's not even like our world yeah right. it's a hyper realistic yeah I mean, they so call their they call their guns swords yeah i love it uh so like comedies really work well like 10 things i hate about you again so fantastic she's the man which is based on 12th night is mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful channing and then you Tatum's have something channing tatum channing. that movie is endlessly quotable um even not using shakespeare language its own script is quotable mm-hmm. um but going to one of HT's for some ungodly reason, well, it's not my one favorite. that she likes. It's not my favorite, but it's just like I'm fascinated. We should mention by what we're talking about oh, first. It's O. We're talking about O, which is a high school retelling of Othello. Also Julia with Julia Stiles, who plays which, who, who's in um, who plays Cat Stratford in Ten Things I Hate About You. Yes, which does not work in a high school setting. It doesn't. Because, again, it's like it's a tragedy, and then, and like you said, it takes it a little too far for a high school setting. Yeah. But it's just. We've got Josh Hardnett as Hugo instead of Iago. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just a strange movie for me. I'm like fascinated by it. You know, whenever I watch it, I'm just like, this is a movie. <laughs> I saw it once I on, uh, on like college TV. Like mm-hmm. my, room, my freshman room, roommate and I were just watching TV on like a Saturday. Yeah. It was HBO, and O was on, and we were just like, fascinated by it. like what that's the is same, this that's movie that's my same reaction like, this is super like intense and it's high school basketball and then we look it up and we're like oh it's oh <laughs> yeah i have <laughs> a reaction to it <laughs> i don't think it works in the setting i don't think that for being a modern day adaptation it handles the race themes oh it doesn't well mm. at all i think it's extremely problematic in how it treats Othello, the character. Mm. Um, it basically treats him as that stereotype of the black man, as, you know, being kind of savage and angry and more primitive than the other characters. Yeah, Which is, like, like that was the point of Othello, mm-hmm. with Iago, like, trying to reinforce that stereotype and cause the chaos and stuff. But, like, it... As unfortunate as it is, like, it works in that kind of setting of, like, Othello as the more, mm-hmm. but, like, in a modern-day high school, it it's doesn't yeah. work. No, it's by, by all means, it's not a good movie. I just, <laughs> I don't know why, but it just, like, fascinates me. It's kind of a strange anomaly in terms of, you know, high school Shakespeare adaptations, which are usually so well done. Um I do want to ask you why Shakespeare seems to work so well in that, like, high school, school setting, or a college setting, as in... Um... I think it's because all the characters are very immature. Yeah? Yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that he tends to write young characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, Romeo and Juliet are very young. Um, like 14 and 16. Yeah, they're 14. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Midsummer Night's Dream, they're all kind of younger. And I think, I think it's also just because it's those kind of things that he taps into of just, like, love... And kind of, he does a lot of things with like identity, 
like especially in like a Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night, um, with kind of Viola figuring out her identity, and I think those are things that just like really tap into the mindset of a high schooler. And I think I, with characters that go through so much transition or character development or you know just how they act, it, they're they're very teenage like, and I think that what makes it's almost like casting superheroes in teenagers like having a spider-man um you get these relatable characters that you can kind of translate onto high schoolers and you can have them have these heightened issues but relate them back to like regular issues of high school which is which makes which is why i think 10 things i hate about you work so well it's because it's basically like you know trying to get it's all all, it's all about relationships and that's Mm -hmm. what high school a lot of it's it's a social Petri dish. It is. And I think that's what makes Shakespeare translate so well mm. into that, into that setting. It, yeah, I think it's also important that Shakespeare, for his young characters, he never mocks them, like, if they are a little overly dramatic because they're young. Like, Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet, like, Shakespeare cares about Romeo and Juliet. Like, Romeo and Juliet are not shamed for falling in love and, like, a lot of people, you know, like to be overly dramatic and be like, she was 13, like, they were children, blah, blah, blah. But, like, that's not... When you read Romeo and Juliet, like, it is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. It's a genuine tragedy um, that it has come to this. And, like, Shakespeare does not, like, infantilize them or kind of try and shame them. And so I think, you know, putting it in high school, like, and, like, kind of giving these children, like, validation... And kind of their feelings and how hard it is to grow up and deal with emotions and things like that. I think that's also pretty important. Yeah. yeah. Shakespeare was uh, John Hughes before John Hughes even existed. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah. So can we talk about, like, a, like Shakespeare-adjacent adaptations? So we've got movies like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, mm. which I think we is... We also a, have... Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too. Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. I think at that's point. we should definitely talk about that. But I, w- I kind of want to talk about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead because we just talked about Hamlet. It's and it's such a good and it's so it's by it's a play by Tom Stoppard and it was adapted into a movie in the '90s with Gary Oldman and uh, Eli Roth. Roth. Uh, Tim, Tim Roth. Roth. Eli Roth is not the same. That guy. would be a very different movie. <laughs> it would very, be different, very different. Very interesting Eli, movie. Eli Roth is much younger too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I meant Tim Roth. <laughs> so Gary Oldman and Tim Roth. Um, and it's for those of you who don't know, quick summary. It's basically the plot of Hamlet from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's perspective. Mm-hmm. But there's also they're a lot smarter when they're not around the other characters, and they're going through the they're talking about like probability and coin flipping and like. Uh, Gary Oldman keeps building like these like uh, paper airplanes that shoot around and they're very intricate and advanced and then like the second that the main characters walk in and they're talking to Hamlet and Claudius and everyone it just becomes like they're stupid and they're just like yep yep ro- ro- yep right away um, and then they go back to talking their eloquent Tom Stoppard speech <laughs> so it's and I really, really like I really love the way that that works because it just shows you that these characters have a life. It's a fun, mm-hmm. subversive movie, and it's another yeah. way of approaching Shakespeare that doesn't like insult the original works, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, they're, um, they're making a movie uh, called Ophelia with Daisy Ridley. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's going to be based on the play Ophelia Thinks Harder, 
Um, I kind of hope it is. So Ophelia Thinks Harder is basically a reimagining of Hamlet from Ophelia's point of view, but also the plot does diverge from the original play. So, like, different things happen in Ophelia Thinks Harder than happen in the original play. Um, and it's all from Ophelia's point of view. It's very feminist. Because um, Ophelia is often one of those Shakespeare characters that gets kind of the short end of the stick. Mm. Like, more than any other female character, a lot. Well, Desdemona had a pretty crappy oh, yeah. Well, yeah. fate, too. That's pretty bad. Um, but yeah, so it's it's fun to see kind of these other characters. Because um, a lot of times, Shakespeare characters, he writes the side characters. They're often kind of more interesting than the main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, like Iago or Mercutio. Um, Lady Macbeth. Yes, my babe. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think, I think kind of exploring these unknown territories is really fun too, and you have a bit more freedom to do what you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tom Stoppard also wrote Shakespeare in Love. Did yes, he? he did. I did not. So know that. that's kind of a tie <laughs> to <laughs> Shakespeare in Love, which I don't need to talk a lot about because I have waxed poetical about this movie countless times on this podcast already. One of our favorite rom-coms, one of our favorite class period movies, and one of our favorite should... Shakespeare sh- Deserves its Oscar movies. Ah. As Anya has said in many of our it podcasts. Is, it is so smart and so clever. And I think the thing is, Shakespeare in Love is one of those clear examples of understanding the material. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of moments in that movie, it's kind of a mishmash of Shakespeare plays. Yeah. Like, Gwyneth Paltrow's character is named Viola, and they have moments from various plays kind of in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's an amalgamation of them all, but, like, they all really work really well, and they kind of, it's a fun, like, homage to Shakespeare. Because isn't he trying to, like, write Romeo and Juliet at the time, mm-hmm. and it's a comedy, and then he realizes, like, through through his own character development, it should be a tragedy mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah, and, and he, then at he, the very he's end He's, like, of getting the movie. inspiration from the real, from mm-hmm. his real life. Yeah, yeah, and at the end of the movie, he starts writing Twelfth Night. Um, Inspired by a Viola. Viola, mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, some of the quotes, like, in the movie are from his plays and stuff, and mm-hmm. the movie's sort of a Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Yeah. Because, like, Shakespeare and Viola, like, are from two different, like, classes, and, like, they can never get married, and, like, no one dies at the end, but they have to be, like, separated at the end, mm-hmm. and it's, like, very tragic. It doesn't work and, out for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of their quotes and stuff come directly from Romeo and Juliet. So it's just a fun, very smart film. Sort of an adaptation. Kind of like what um, that Anne Hathaway, Jane Austen movie. Becoming was, Jane. Becoming Jane was... With James like, McAvoy. Yeah. Was, <laughs> I wow. know you'd know that movie. <laughs> I also was in a James McAvoy phase when I watched it, so I was like, oh, this is great. Although the movie itself, I think, was a less successful like kind of yeah. version of Shakespeare in Love and that it tried to take all the genre homages to Austin's work and didn't really work out that well. I will point yeah. out that there's a great parody of Shakespeare in Love called George Lucas in Love in which he's, on, col- he's on the college campus and he's trying to write Star Wars and he gets inspiration from quote-unquote real life and it's just basically, the, it's like a nine-minute movie of, of Shakespeare in Love but George Lucas in Love. Mm-hmm. It's really cute. It also uses the soundtrack from Shakespeare in Love. It does, and I really love that. Which is really cute. Wow. Yeah, it's a fun yeah. short film. We'll have to watch it's it It's really cute. You should. Um, so, Anya, one tiny criticism I have about Shakespeare in Love. Oh, no. How do you feel about the character William Shakespeare himself played by Joseph Fiennes? Because I felt like he was the weakest part of the movie. 
I felt he was like a little bit too flippant and kind of, I don't know, silly, I guess, uh, to be like this, you know, famed Shakespeare. I mean, it, it worked with the tone of the movie, but it, in itself, I felt like he was a very kind of weak central character. Um, like you don't think he was I, as important as, as he should be? Not important. I just didn't like, I just felt like the way that he was played and the way that he played a part in his own story was a little bit like light. You know? Yeah. I love Joseph Fiennes as Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. I think tonally it really works. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, like, just realistically, like, Shakespeare... Like, Shakespeare was sort of, like, this flippant young guy who mm-hmm. wrote, like, a lot of, like, dirty jokes into his plays and, like, had a wife back in Stratford, which they mention in the movie, and, like, comes to London and becomes a playwright and sort of neglects his family. And so I think it works. Um, I also think it works, like, from an arc perspective of, like, you see Shakespeare in the beginning of the movie and how kind of aimless he is. Um, And throughout the movie and through his relationship with Viola, he grows and becomes, like, a better playwright and kind of has a better understanding of relationships and human lives. Um... So I think it works. I think it's also probably Joseph Fiennes' best role to date. Not that he has much to, like, go off of, because Boy has not had the biggest career in the world. Yeah, Flash Forward was really bad. I just want to... He was in Flash Forward. Was he so was bad. the main character in Flash Forward. I thought John yeah. Cho was the main character in Flash Forward. No. No. That's <laughs> sad. Joseph Fiennes and, like, Jack Davenport and Sonia Walker were, like, the main three. Yeah. It, it was, was a, a trend. It was a loss or buff. Yeah. It was, like... A very obvious Lost or Pop, too. Which is funny oh, yeah. because it had, it had lost actors in it. Yeah, yeah. I know. Penny! Yeah, Penny and uh, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Charlie. Dominic um, Monaghan was in it. So, yeah, was I, it? I, That's crazy. Yeah, he was. <laughs> so, I like it, but I, I can see what you're saying. I, I get what you're Yeah, saying. that was kind of like my reaction to Shakespeare in Love, which I enjoyed as a movie, and I thought it was fun. But, yeah, like, the central performance for me was a little bit weak. Yeah. Um. So, let's wrap up our Shakespeare um, discussion by talking about your favorite Shakespeare adaptations. Anya, you go first. I feel like we've hit on so many of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, Shakespeare of all the- Much Ado About Nothing is probably the favorite, just because it's also my favorite play. Um, the Midsummer Night's Dream movie that I mentioned. Um, I love Brana's Hamlet as well. Ten things I hate about you. I mean, all the ones that I've mentioned. I also think it's. Um, I'm gonna one of my favorite adaptations. That was not a movie, mm-hmm. but while I was studying abroad in London, um, at the Globe Theater, so the actual Globe Theater, Ooh. they had a series of Shakespeare adaptations from different countries, and it was really neat to see them kind of reimagined. And they were also they were in the language of that country, mm-hmm. so they weren't in English. Um, and so they just happened to be doing much about nothing in French. Oh. So it was my favorite play in a language that I know, or know enough, <laughs> study. Um, and so I saw Wanted About Nothing in French Ooh. at the Globe Theater, which just standing in the Globe Theater seeing Shakespeare performed is like that's probably a like... weird, out-of-body, surreal experience. Um, but it was really wonderful. I loved seeing kind of a different kind of a different country's interpretation of the material and kind of their language and how they kind of play with things um and so shakespeare is worldwide he's universal and i think it's always worth kind of checking out other countries like international adaptations of shakespeare 
as well. Okay. Yeah. So, Willoughby, do you have a favorite Shakespeare adaptation? The Lion King. <laughs> um, that's like a half-joking one, but also, but my more serious one is Ten Things I Hate About You. That is also my favorite one. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Ten Things I Hate About You, starring the late, Le- the late Heath Ledger, Julia Stiles. Not late Julia Stiles. <laughs> <laughs> the late Heath Ledger. Actress Julia Stiles, who, by the way, I should mention, was also in Hamlet 2000 as Ophelia. That's hilarious. Yeah, so she, in in the course of her career, she's played in three different types of, like, Shakespeare adaptations. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Also, baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's one of my favorites. And Heath Ledger, which is really funny, because they're both in Dark Knight movies. Yeah, and they look very much alike. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they look so alike. Mm -hmm. Um, I miss Heath Ledger. Yeah, I know, me too. We he was so do. good in that film. He yes. was. Um, but yeah, it's such a great, fun interpretation of um, Taming of the Shrew. And if you didn't even know, like, I honestly didn't realize it was yeah, a Shakespeare movie mm-hmm. until afterwards. And it still, it works so well, even if you don't know that yeah. it's, like, based on Shakespeare. Yeah, it has levels. It seems at first just like another teen rom-com, teen rom-com but it's not. Yeah. Anyways. I think right. that is a good wrap-up for our Shakespeare discussion. Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. I really, 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 really like you. why don't you go first this week? Yes. So it was my birthday on Wednesday. And Happy birthday, Willoughby! Thank you. Um, and... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I got a cassette of the Awesome Mix Volume One from Guardians of the Galaxy, and I was like, I don't even have a cassette player, but I really wanted the tape just because from the movie, that's how he plays it, the, the songs, which is on tape. And so, uh, for my birthday, HT got me a cassette player, uh, and I listened to it on Friday. It sounds so good on cassette. It's like it's not there, it's not the remastered versions, so it sounds like the classic ones you would hear on the radio and it's got like you know it's not perfect and it's got you can hear the tape playing like in the background and it's like this physical media that we don't get to like do anymore and my mom had to help me with the cassette player because it has been probably 15 years since i used one and so i was like oh i need to know how to rewind the tape and she's like just play the the play side b and as it moves the Side, fee, side B forward, it rewinds side A, so when you're ready to go listen to side A again, it's there ready to do it. And I'm like, oh my god, this is fantastic technology, why did we ever move away from this? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, am, I guess I'm starting a cassette player, a cassette tape collection again. Well, that is delightful. I haven't played a cassette in, I don't know, 15 years? Yeah. I used to re- listen to audiobooks from it. Not actually for music, just audiobooks. Wow. I used to listen to, like, The Lion King Broadway musical on cassette, and then we got the CD. Yeah. Oh, I don't have the sound music. Yeah. That listened to Phantom of the Opera. Oh. was on cassette, and I remember because, like, there were different acts, and so I had to, like, change the tapes yeah. to, like, continue yeah. the show. Remember when movies were on VHS tape, and they had, like, Braveheart or Titanic or Sound of Music in, and two, had to rewind in, two, in two tapes? I still have those, yeah. actually. Yeah. They're in my house. It's crazy. Yeah. I would borrow, um, well, I had the Sound of Music soundtrack on cassette, but I would borrow audiobooks from the library and just, like, go to sleep with the cassette player um, reading an audiobook. That's yeah. how much of a nerd I was. <laughs> so the awesome mix on volume, volume 1 on tape as well as a tape player. Uh, that's not what I really, really like this week. Okay. Anya, why don't you go next? I really like 
that I finally saw the invitation. Oh, that's the horror movie, right? And it blew my mind. Oh. For someone who we that we talked about in our past episode, someone who's not really bothered by spoilers, I am so glad that I went into this movie completely in the dark. It made it so much better. It's interesting, we actually called the ending at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. But the movie is constructed so well that we continually second-guessed ourselves, like, every minute that it kept going. We were like, wait, is it that? Or is it going to be this? And, like, it's so gripping and so well done. It also deals with really interesting themes about grief and depression Mm. and moving on um, in really interesting ways. Um, And the last shot of the film is, like, seared into my mind. Like, that last shot like took the breath out of me i i'm i love this film it was so good um and it also just kind of lately i've been kind of in a slump of not really watching new movies i've been watching a lot of tv mm-hmm. and just seeing this just kind of reinvigorated me um that i need to get back to watching new movies because as much as tv is great but movies are my first love um and they always kind of get me a little bit more and so yeah so the invitation was absolutely fantastic directed by a woman and absolutely wonderful i highly recommend it um for someone who's a baby with horror films i had no problems um because it's mostly a thriller and then when like the horror things happen it's it's things that you've seen before okay it's not like it's not like horror in the traditional sense it's like suspense suspense and i mean there there is like there is blood Mm. but it's like it's you know, it's nothing that you haven't seen in, like, an action film. Okay. I might um, check it out now. But, yeah, and just try and go into it completely in the dark. Okay. Because not being spoiled for this film, I think, is beneficial. Because it really, not that it relies on, like, a plot twist, but, like, the tension and kind of constantly, like, second-guessing your own mind of, like, what is happening really makes it rewarding. All right. Well, thanks for not spoiling it for us. I <laughs> might check it out. I am missing watching movies, too. I've been just catching up on TV. I'm not even all caught up on TV yet. I just kind of... It's too much. There's too much TV, Willoughby. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> I have no other life. <laughs> just kidding. Anyways. So, HD, what about you? Okay, so my really like is not really a like, but a sort of interest. Um, so, Fantastic Beasts is coming out soon. And J.K. Rowling recently announced that there are going to be five Fantastic Beasts movies. It was amazing. Yeah, which I have <laughs> I have mixed feelings about, but it doesn't lower my excitement for Fantastic Beasts. And I'm wondering, like, is it if it's that strong of a, of a movie, of a story to, like, go on for five movies. Because I knew we were getting three movies. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, my real like is, like, a really... Really intrigued. <laughs> really intrigued. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, if it's five movies, then maybe they'll go more into um, the war, um, the Voldemort's war or whatever. whatever Dumbledore it's versus Grindelwald. Oh, yeah, like Dumbledore versus Grindelwald because that's when it's happening. Yeah. And uh, Grindelwald is supposed to be um, in Fantastic Beasts or at least yeah. somewhat mentioned. I think he's the big bad of this, of the the whole thing so that might be what they're doing like they're raising the stakes and it's not just like a fun one-off like ghostbusters but magic but an actual like high stakes movie yeah because like by the fourth movie are they going to have any fantastic beasts to find or did they catch them all 
That's a good question. It's like Pokemon, and they just get a like, new batch every every movie. There's more Fantastic Beasts that we didn't know about. It'll probably, I think, stray away from the Fantastic Beasts element. I also wonder if it'll go back to England at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know we kind of talked about this a little bit, but, like, as much as it's first, like, Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Oh, there are beasts on the loose in New York City in 1920s. But the more and more material that's come out, like, it's become clear that it's going to be so much more than that, because mm-hmm. like, there's also the second Salemers, yeah. and there's this kind of, like, growing tension in American wizarding society of, like, having to hide themselves and, like, being resentful of muggles or nomads. So they're dealing with really interesting themes beyond the beasts, and the yeah. beasts is kind of the catalyst, I think, for these events to kind of come to a head. A lot of interesting social tensions that, um, I like that the way they're rolling that out in Pottermore, too, because it's, like, at first it's just, like, oh, why is she doing all this history? It's just gonna be, like, press for Fantastic Beasts, but apparently it's actual, just, like, background and backstory, which is a really interesting way of doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. I really am intrigued. I'd like them to see, I like to see them go to different continents and try Mm. to pull off an all-life guest. That'd be really cool. (laughs) I don't think they could do it. I mean, the all-life cast part, not so much, but but the traveling continents. I just, I just want them to be like, we're gonna go to Africa, so you're gonna have black people in it? Well, in the more recent trailers for Fantastic Beasts, we are seeing more people of color. That's true. So that is exciting. But there is still that, like, like when when the casting was at, was was released, everyone's like, this is going to be an all-white cast. And, yeah, I'm assuming, like, yeah. as it goes on, since they're extending the story, they can add more supporting characters yeah. and, and I color, think they're hopefully. supposed to go more around yeah. the world. Yeah. So. yeah. Something around the world and fantastic beasts. <laughs> days. <laughs> all right. So, guys, if you guys have any thoughts on Shakespeare adaptations or the awesome Mix Volume 1 or cassette players or fantastic... <laughs> what? It's a comeback. To come back, or Fantastic Beasts, or The Invitation, or other really good suspenseful movies you guys want to recommend to us, uh, come chat us up. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook, uh, where you can search for us there. We're on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is MillennialFalconPodcast.wordpress.com. You can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play, where you can rate and review us there. We're also on SoundCloud. And where can they find you guys? You can find me at htrendbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye! Bye.